All right, well, good morning, everybody. We're going to be turning to number 16 to 19 together in the Word of God. I think there's an element in which you, when you start reading through the Bible and you get to the book of Numbers and it's like you just opened up the junk drawer of the Old Testament. It's like, yeah, there's some stuff that's organized in here, but then there's just a bunch of junk. And why is it in here? (laughs) It's not exactly like that in reality. It's a book that's filled with grace, but that grace and the love of God is perhaps expressed in ways that are different than we would anticipate, such as his loving judgment of sinners to purify a congregation and Uh, redirecting them back to the atonement and the purification that he is so eager to give to these people that are so backwards to him. This section that we're looking at today includes Korah's rebellion, an infamous section of scripture. Also, Aaron's bud, which buds and blooms, which moves back to the responsibilities of the Levites and this special instructions for the slaughtering of a red heifer. In the beginning of this section of scripture, you have all these arguments where the sons of Korah and the sons of some of the Reubenite guys come and they tell Moses and Aaron, you have gone far enough. And then Moses says, you have gone far enough. And then Moses questions them. He says, well, is it not enough that God has given us, you know, these things? And they say, well, is it you know, not enough that uh, you guys promised that we would have milk and honey and we don't have it yet? So there's all this argument over What is enough? And we're certainly familiar with the phrase, enough is enough. Which can have, it can mean some different things. It could mean, that's it. You have filled up your complainings for the day and enough is enough. It could be a a correction in that way, but it could also be an expression of contentment, (laughs) which is not how it's used in this text. We see rather of people who are very discontented. I want to tell you a little bit about a preacher whose name was Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was born on September 24th in 1759. This was a year after Jonathan Edwards had died, and he was born within the last 11 years of the ministry of George Whitfield, so you can kind of place him in history in Cambridge, England. He's known for his relentless ministry of prayer and the word amidst great opposition where he endured in a church congregation that largely persecuted him for his 54 years of ministry there. He didn't go anywhere despite all the trouble he found there. In 1782, he would have been 23, Simeon had left university and was planning to move back to his father's house. And during this time, the previous vicar of the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, died, which opened up some opportunity for a new minister to 
come on staff there, and Bishop York of this Anglican church appointed Simeon within the church, and he was assigned to preach his first sermon there a month later. And while Bishop York may have hired Simeon, and he wanted him there, the congregation did not want Simeon there. There was another guy that they liked better. His name was Mr. Hammond, and this congregation was in charge of picking who preached the second service which was the only open slot, and they wouldn't let Simeon have it. They brought in Mr. Hammond to preach there for five years. So you think of five years, Simeon dealing with that, and then Mr. Hammond moves on. So you think, well, you know, Simeon's kind of the only guy. They find somebody else for seven years to fill in in the second service which my guess is that they, these people were descendants of Laban. <laughs> so despite these 12 years of rebellion, and it went on longer than that, Simeon still stayed in this church for 54 years. When any, any year he could have said, you know, enough is enough. You know, I'm going to go somewhere else. He continued to entrust himself to God and gospel ministry is he believed that God knows how to deal with the rebellious and he also knows how to uphold his chosen leadership. We see something similar to this reality of a rebellious congregation and God upholding his leadership in Numbers 16 to 19. And as we turn there, I'm going to open us in prayer and we'll begin to look at that section of scripture. Our gracious Lord, there is much for us to learn from this book of numbers. There is much grace to see for those who grumble against you. There is much correction for our own hearts to see here. And there is much of Christ to be remembered and recounted. We pray that you would use this text to teach us not only of your holy judgment and put a holy fear within us, but of your holy grace whereby you atone for undeserving sinners, and that is the reality that breaks sin's guilt and power. It is our introduction into faith, and it is the gospel grace which we continue to stand in today, which is continuing to transform us. We pray that you would help us to behold you in your word and to transform us by your grace which is seen here. Amen. As you begin chapter 16 it says uh, now Korah and the sons of Izhar and the son of Kohath, the son of Levi and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the sons of Reuben took others and they rose up before Moses together and some of the sons of Israel 250 leaders of the congregation upon by the assembly men of renown so here we have you know Korah infamous for the rebellion of Korah or Korah's rebellion and this is a group of the Kohathites. Who remembers who the Kohathites were and where they dwelt in the camp? Now, a while back, I gave you a little chart with a handout. 
that you could reference. And I don't have any extras with me, but uh, if you would like one of those, you can let me know and I can print some more and bring them. But within the camp, right around the tabernacle, all of the Levites lived there. I guess I got to draw it. Okay, here's the tabernacle. You have, you know, Levites are here. You have the, the priestly Levites here. They were not all priests, just those guys there. Here's where Kohath was. And what, a, what did Kohath get the privilege of doing? Yeah, they carried the ark. They carried all the stuff that was inside of the tabernacle. So you could kind of imagine the, the greed that might creep up in their hearts because they're like, well, we're not priests. Why do we not get to be priests? Why do we got to carry around the stuff for these guys? You know, they didn't think about the great privilege that they had. And you have the whole, you know, court heart, courtyard here. You have uh, the Kohathites right here and right on the other side of the fence. So here's K guys. You got the R guys, the Reubenites. They're right over there. These were uh, the you know, sons of the, the slave woman, bad dudes. One of the, the things that you note about Reuben, he was the firstborn, technically, of the sons of Israel. And he always wanted to be number one, but he never was. Somehow, well, Judah, Judah's out here. Judah always ends up being the leader. And you see that even with the ideas when, you know, the brothers are going to kill Joseph. And they're like, let's throw him in a well and... Let's kill him. Let's just kill him. Reuben's like, well, let's, let's not kill him. Let's do something else. And then nobody listens to Reuben. But then Judah comes along. He's like, oh, let's just throw him in a well and slaughter an animal and dip his fancy little royal robe in some blood and take it back to dad. They're like, okay, we'll do it, Judah says. And Reuben's like, why can't I ever be number one? Well, that continues to go on throughout the family. You know, they want to be number one, but now there's some guys over the fence that also want to be number one. So they're like, let's partner together and try to be number one here, because we've, we've had enough of this. The Kohathites didn't want to be number two carrying the ark, but they wanted the priesthood. And Reuben just always wanted to be number one somehow. And the rebellion you see here when you look at verse three, it's over this issue of holiness. So then they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and Yahweh is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? So this wasn't a small group. This is 250 leaders and a bunch of people following them. And they were appointed by the people and for the people. Says so they were men of renown, which helps you understand these weren't just some rogue thugs, but these were respected men. These were men that people thought, these are men of character. These are men who are looking out for our best interest. And therefore they called upon and said, you guys are the best of the best and you could help us in this injustice that's being committed against us. Which makes the rebellion all the more tragic because it was the best and the most respected men that were leading these people astray. But what it looked like to them was, here's people that are standing up for our rights and our, our freedom. These so-called men of renown, they gathered together and they rebelled against Aaron on the basis of 
telling them, you have gone far enough. It's time for some checks and balances here because all the congregation is holy, which I think raises the question, says who? Who says that they're holy? Well, they said that they were holy. One of the things we talked about in Leviticus was this concept of the way you become holy must be holy. So you think about throughout the, as God established the tabernacle worship, that these were things that God called holy. He was telling them what was holy and how they would be made holy. Now, these people were not going through God's declaration of holiness to become holy. They just said, it's that way because we said so. Now, you can't just declare yourself holy. God must declare you holy. You can't just name it and claim it ex nihilo. God alone reserves the right and the freedom to declare things to be holy. And these men in their rebellion, they have an assumption built in, which is, why do you exalt yourselves, Moses and Aaron? You see, the assumption is that Moses and Aaron had exalted themselves. God had not done it. God's not really in the picture in, in their minds. It's just these guys, Moses and Aaron, who did this for some reason. What you see here that they're not bearing true witness about the reality of what has happened, but this is a false witness against Moses and Aaron. And don't overlook the irony here that while they're saying, why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh, that what they are doing is exalting themselves above the assembly. This is like Romans 2 where it says, do you, the judge, not do the very same things? On an earthly horizontal level, these men look like heroic social activists advocating for holy human rights, and they've come to accomplish social justice by tearing down the priestly privilege hegemony. They were radical, egalitarian socialists who saw the solution to this problem of everybody has equal outcome of status and role. We're all holy. We all get the same outcome and stuff. But had God exalted these men who were exalting themselves, or had God exalted other men, Moses and Aaron, who didn't actually exalt themselves? God had put Moses and Aaron into this leadership position. Moses and Aaron, as you remember, were reluctant and not exactly qualified. <laughs> but God changed them uh, over time. So we see here the people aren't really rebelling against Moses and Aaron as they saw it. Ultimately, it was a rebellion against God because God put those leaders there God had brought them out and had designed all of this for his good and wise purposes. So what do we learn from this example in Scripture? How is this instructive to us upon whom the end of the ages have arrived? Well, one, we learn the, the character of false teachers that they look like men of renown, and they're among you, and so in a way they're, they're hard to detect because they look like and sound like they're for you. Jude 10 to 13, 
ties back into this and brings out these realities. He says, but these men blaspheme the things they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and for pay they have poured themselves into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. But you can see that in this event we're reading about. It says they're clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. We're also cautioned from this section of scripture to avoid such men and to depart from wickedness, which is what Timothy tells Paul in 2 Timothy 2. He says, avoid godless and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their word will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness, which is a cross-reference back into our text here. We're to look at this and understand this is what false teachers are like. They look like men of renown, but they're actually men who don't understand what they're talking about and they're clouds without water that can't deliver on their campaign. And so we're to depart from them and to depart from giving in to that wickedness of seeing the world wrongly and complaining about the leadership structure that the Lord has placed over us. Well, how does Moses respond to these things in verses 4 to 7? Well, you would think in hearing these things that Moses would just, you know, give them a stern pointing and explain to them, you know, you guys don't know who you're talking about. You don't, you don't know who you're talking to. You know, I'm Moses. I'm the most humble man on the planet. <laughs> like, it says so in the Bible even. <laughs> and I wrote it down, by the way. But the way he responds is when he heard this, he fell on his face. And here we see his humility. And he spoke to Korah and all his congregation. And you think this, he's, no, he's not... He didn't go up, you know, on the highest place and speak down to them. He went down to the lowest place and was speaking up to them. And he doesn't seek to defend himself, but he says in verse 5, Tomorrow morning Yahweh will show who is his and who is holy. And will bring him near to himself. So think about that. The Lord's the one who says who is holy, and he's the one who brings near to himself. Now, this was a lesson that Moses learned at the burning bush when, when he approached it. He couldn't approach it however he wanted. He could only approach it with his sandals off. 
So you can't approach God however you want, which is exactly what these men in their rebellion were doing. They're thinking, we can approach the burning bush however we want, and nothing will happen to us. Uh, it's a right that we have, and we can determine how we're going to approach God. But you see, what's different here is that it's the total opposite. God is the one who declares who is holy, and he is the only one who brings near to himself. So it's even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. And at the end of verse 7, well, we'll just continue reading through that, verse 6. says, do this, take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your congregation, and put fire in them. How does this remind you of any other event of rebellious people with censers and fire? Yeah, Nadab and Abihu. So you kind of think, you know, if you're on the other end of this, you're like, I don't know, Moses. <laughs> but they're like, great idea, let's do this. And lay incense upon them in the presence of Yahweh tomorrow, and the man whom Yahweh chooses shall be the one who is holy. And he retorts back to them, he says, you have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. But you also see this element in which he's expressing that, you know, enough is enough. Uh, this is an, you have filled up the cup of rebellion and this needs to be settled. But then you see this enough is enough expressed as a discontentment in verse 9. Or just previous to that, it says, Then Moses said to Korah, Here now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to perform the service of the tabernacle of Yahweh? Is it, are you guys not content with the high privilege that you guys get to carry the ark? <laughs> like, who else gets to do that? You know, has God not been good to you and kind to you to bring you into his service and to give you this high privilege? He's here addressing their discontentment with the goodness of God, which has been shown to them and that God has brought them near and give the, given them ministry privilege. And going on, looking at verse 11 he corrects them as he has before to help them to understand their rebellion isn't against him. He says in verse 11, Therefore you and all your congregation are gathered together against Yahweh. But as for Aaron, who is he <laughs> that you grumble against him? Aaron's nobody. But Yahweh is the one who has done all of these things and the one that you're rebelling against is a group within the group, a division within the congregation here. And in verse 12, we come back to these fellows named Dathan and Abiram who dig their heels in the sand as the Canaan now lobbyist. And they say, we will not come up. And they take up this phrase, is it not enough? You know, they try to flip it back on Aaron. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to put us to death in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? 
So they flip it around and say, you know, this is all just a political move on you part. You guys had this whole campaign. You're not delivering on your promises. And the reason you actually brought us out here is to kill us and so that you could be lords over us. You guys are just greedy for power. You're greedy, power-hungry oppressors that are leaving us hungry out here in the wilderness for the sake of your own personal gain. You see these men, and you find out they're women and children who refused to come up were very much discontent with submitting to God's appointed leadership. What do you think would be a, an opportunity that Moses could take to explain his kindness toward them or to vindicate himself and how God had indeed chosen him? But Moses doesn't even talk to them when they say, we will not come up. In verse 15, it says, then Moses became very angry. I think, all right, he's angry. He's going to let them have it. But what it says is he became angry and he said to Yahweh. He recognizes, this is not the time for me to talk to them. <laughs> I'm going to go to Yahweh. And here's, he says, do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. So he's praying to God and the God who acknowledges that Moses didn't lead these people for greedy gain. And when his leadership was challenged, he was entrusting himself to the one who appointed him and trusting God to uphold the integrity of his character. He wouldn't have to say anything about his integrity. He could trust God to testify to that and to make it right. Going on in verses 16 through 19, Moses calls Korah to a trial by fire, which as we've seen, it was reminiscent of the grand opening of the priesthood where Nadab and Abihu put fire and incense in their censers. And God separated the self-styled from the Yahweh obedient. And it says there at the end of verse 19, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the congregation. So over and over throughout this book, you see people that are complaining against God. They're bickering about things, grumbling about things. And then Yahweh shows up and everything changes very drastically. But what is unique about the glory of Yahweh or what is specific about his glory that is focused on here? And I think you see that in verse 20 beginning there. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. Now what does God want to make known about his glory I consume rebels. You know, my glory is that I, I, I kill those who rebel against me. I, I'm so holy that I will by no means clear the guilty. And I want to make that known about my name through this action. And so what happens is the God of creation will end up opening up the earth beneath the feet of these men and swallowing them in to it as a grave alive. 
reminds us of that reality from Nadab and Abihu that if you don't offer the right sacrifice to God, you become the sacrifice. Yahweh in his sovereignty swallows up the rebels down into the earth from which they complained that they would not be brought up. And it was so. There was no middle ground for them to straddle. They would either be bound for being under the land rather than bound for the promised land. And what happens in verse 38 is says the censors of these men who had sinned at the cost of their lives, they were to make them into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they brought them near before Yahweh, and they are holy, and they shall be assigned to the sons of Israel. This was to become a memorial day. In verse 40, it says this was a memorial to the sons of Israel that no outsider who is not of the seed of Aaron should come near to burn incense before Yahweh. This metal was plated on the altar. It was a sign and a memorial of men who have sinned at the cost of their lives. Verses 41 to 50. How, how do you think? Don't, don't read it yet. Don't look at it. <laughs> but now this great judgment has occurred. It's the next day. How do you think these people would respond after seeing a whole bunch of people swallowed up in the earth? Like Moses only pleads to Yahweh. He's not talking to them about this. How do you think they're going to see this thing on the next day? Yeah, you think they would be humbled, like, because this is bad. This isn't Moses and Aaron. This is something way bigger than them, right? <laughs> Verse 41. But on the next day, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the people of Yahweh. <laughs> and it came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting. Behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of Yahweh appeared. So this is kind of like a deja vu sort of thing. It's like this kind of just happened yesterday. This could be bad. Maybe we've made a mistake. You know, they're not. <laughs> they're, they're truly blind in their sin and accusing you know, Moses and Aaron and uh, bringing about this great judgment. And I think here we see the sinfulness of sin and the deceitfulness of deceit and the depravity of depravity. And I have to put it that way because we don't tend to think of it as all that bad. Like when you read the word grumbling, it's like, well, grumbling is just normal. People just do that. It's like God swallows people up into the earth for stuff like that. Or even when I use the word discontentment, like, well, discontentment's not that big of a sin. It's like these people got capital punishment for being discontent with the leadership that God had given them. These people clearly don't understand who they are rejecting and despising, which on a human level, it's toward Aaron. Aaron was the rejected and despised priest. 
And as the rejected and despised priest, you look in verse 46, it says, Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire in it from the altar and lay incense on it and bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Now, if you're, you're Aaron, just on a human level, you're like, forget it. Like, they, they deserve it. I'm not going to do this for them. But Aaron has also learned by now that when Yahweh tells Moses something, and then Moses tells you that Yahweh said something, do it or die, all right? So he does this. He goes, it says, but here's the issue. It says, wrath has gone forth from Yahweh. The plague has begun. And Aaron took it as Moses had spoken, and he ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on the account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting for the plague had been checked. <clears throat> There's a very obvious shadow to the greater rejected and despised priest who had come, namely the Christ Messiah, who it says in Isaiah 53 that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore himself and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It's good to meditate on the superiority of Christ's atonement as we see that throughout the book of Hebrews, how often the author says, look at the weakness of these Levitical priests and the, the weakness of that mosaic covenant and how temporary it was and how those who were atoned for could still be lost. The superiority of Christ's atonement is that he never loses that which his blood pleads for ever. Everyone that he atones for, he keeps eternally. And his atonement provides very different results on the other side of the plague of sin which is within our hearts. And you see that even with Aaron, that the atonement and which side of this priest you were on and his atonement makes all the difference. On this day, it says 14,700 people died, which communicated very loudly, God is holy. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. He is a holy judge, and he won't share his judgment glory with another. So you think about that. They said, Moses and Aaron did this. God says, I'm not sharing my judgment glory with them. I'm the one who judges you. Let me make that very apparent to you. But he also makes his holy grace known to these people, and that he puts the plague in check, because there's other people who should recognize we should be buried right now, but whatever it is that's going on with 
Aaron and this atonement is keeping us out of that grave right now. God, throughout this time, is performing great miracles against a great apostasy, which is common throughout Scripture. You know, the greater the unbelief, the greater the miracles are to give a sure and certain testimony against those who do not believe that you should have, and your condemnation is just. In chapter 17, as we see the the leadership that Yahweh defends, he authenticates his leadership by these rods which are taken in 17.5. says, and it will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout Thus I will rid myself of the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. So there's 12 rods that are taken, but only one of them is going to sprout, and it would be a testimony against the grumbling rebels, which should shut their mouths. All the other rods remained as they were. They remained unchanged, but Aaron's bloomed and was fruitful. Aaron's rod sprouts like a tree of life that bears fruit in its season. And it was a testimony and sign against the rebels to silence their discontented, covetous hearts so that they will not die. You see that in verse 10. It says, but Yahweh said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. So this is going to be a testimony. It's going to be carried around in the ark and people were going to remember what happened on this day so God doesn't you know, continually have these great judgments. We have the same thing within the New Testament church with events like Ananias and Sapphira. You know, that, it wasn't something that happened every week. Like everybody who had told a lie that week, all of a sudden they're just executed. So, you know, God graciously, he does that to that couple, and it's a testimony to future generations that maybe we shouldn't do that. But this is a reminder, you know, of Eve and her dis contentedness. It's a reminder of the the tree of life and that there is a way to come near to the tree of life, but if you try to come any other way than being brought near by Yahweh, you will surely die. You think about that as Adam and Eve, they would try to look back to see the tree in the garden while they were outside of it, that, well, if you do that, you get cut up in the flaming gyroscope thing from all this, this huge angel army. It's not going to work. The only way you can go near to him is if Yahweh chooses to bring you near. The wages of sin is death, but somehow death deservers can have this wrath averted. It can be turned away so that they will not die by atonement offered by a priest. See this in chapter 18. I titled this chapter, The the Gospel Gifts Yahweh Gives. Now Yahweh speaks specific to Aaron here. 
It says, you and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. But bring near with you also your brothers, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, so that they may be joined with you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. So they are to seek peace and unity with their brothers, the Kohathites, within the camp. And Aaron's being reminded of his guilt-bearing ministry in connection to the place of the presence of God. And he stands between God's holy place and a sinful people as a guardian. He would protect people from God's wrath. Say, don't walk up here. <laughs> if you're going to walk up here to the tabernacle, you got to come through the altar. you got to come through the sacrifices. And you got to come through the right sacrifices in the right way with the right priest. You've got to do exactly as Yahweh has commanded or die. And verse 3, it says, And they shall thus keep your responsibility and the responsibility of all the tent, but they shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary and the altar so that they nor you will die. So, you know, this very much sounds like protecting the garden. You've got to keep it. You've got to cultivate it. You've got to guard it and not do forbidden things or you die. But there's a substitute here for people outside the garden who can guard and keep this in their place, and he has a responsibility to God and the people as a mediator between them to atone for this wrath that is deserved and to avert wrath and death. Verse 5, it says, So you shall keep the responsibility of the sanctuary and the responsibility of the altar so that there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. And at the end of verse 7, it says, But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So you can't just walk up there as an outsider. You have to be made an insider first through God's provided means. chapter 18, verses 8 to 19, we read here what I call the priest payday. Verse 8, it says, uh, Yahweh spoke to Aaron, Now behold, I myself have given you the responsibility of my contributions, even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual statute. This shall be yours from the most holy gifts reserved from the fire every offering of theirs, even every grain offering and every sin offering and every guilt offering which they shall render to me shall be most holy for you and your sons. As for the most holy gifts, you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. You see here that God provides a portion for the priest to carry out his gospel ministry by the sacrifices which the congregation brought forth. And 
Paul looks back at the principle in this text in 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14. He says, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And within this support that would come from the congregation, it was also taught to the priest and reminded them in verses 20 to 24, as Yahweh said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. Why would these priests not have any portion or inheritance in the land? Yeah, he says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Well, is that true only for them or would it also be true for the congregation even though they did have an inheritance? You know, it's true for all of them, but God, in the teaching model of the priesthood, these guys were a reminder to everybody that Yahweh is your inheritance. Yahweh is your portion ultimately. And since they had no inheritance in the land, they were dependent on the sacrifices of others. They were dependent on Yahweh being their portion, but the way he provided it was through the people so that they could see an example in these men that we can trust God to provide for us and to provide for us through the means that he has set up within our circumstances and life. So what they did, they, they tithed their agricultural tithe. And of these priests, it wasn't the, they, they didn't have some clergy exemption where the tithe that they received, then it's like, well, we don't have to give anything to Yahweh out of thanks or to show that we trust him because, you know, we're priests. It's like, well, no, they took of the tithe and they also had the privilege and joy of giving of that tithe to Yahweh as an expression of thanks like everybody else, uh, as a way of showing that their trust in Yahweh wasn't something in word only. They had a real tangible way in which they could express that they trust him in which they took what God had given to them and they gave some of it back to him. In Hebrews chapter 7, in thinking again on how Christ's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood, I wrote some observations here from that chapter, uh, how Christ's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. As that chapter ties back into this section in Scripture, and it's argued that it's, it's a greater priesthood because it's not trace to a genealogy of priests that need to collect from other people because in Jesus' priesthood he doesn't need anything from anybody uh, he doesn't need to be blessed by anybody else he just blesses everybody else is how his priesthood works Jesus doesn't bring any need in his priesthood but only blessing but he also provides the pr perfection that the Levitical priesthood didn't and couldn't. You know, the Levitical priesthood just pointed out, God is perfect and you're not. 
and you need to move toward the one who can perfect you. You need to trust in him that he's going to do that someday through a substitute sacrifice, which is Christ, the priest who provides that perfection that the law was too weak to do. Also, Christ's priesthood, it's not based on physical requirement. That was another unique thing about the Aaronic priesthood is that it, it was hereditary. You know, it was tied into this particular family, but Christ's priesthood is according to the power of an indestructible life. So in that way, he can be a priest forever who's never destroyed and he never dies because he never sins. So his priesthood is forever and not temporary. Therefore, he always lives to make intercession for us. He doesn't retire at the age of 50 like the priest did. He didn't die for some reason and thought, man, my favorite guy who interceded for me, he's gone now. It's like he's just you know, always on duty, 24-7. But you remember how David was comforted by that and you know, Psalms 3 and 4, when he is troubled by, you know, the, the nations rebelling against God. He says, I can go to sleep tonight because I know that you work the night watch. As Hebrews chapter 7 ends this way, it says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, he's not a savior who needs to be offered up multiple times because of his worth. Because he's of eternal worth, he only needs to be sacrificed one time for all. He accomplishes it in that one sacrifice that does not need to be repeated because of his great power and eternality. So within those hospital rooms where they still, you know, they have a little crucifix where Christ is still on it he's not still on it we should like replace all of those with an empty tomb instead we should make empty tomb necklaces or something I don't know what that would look like they're probably you can probably find some on the the, the Etsy website Going on in verses 25 to 32, there's a reminder to, to give God the best. Verse 29 within that section says, Out of all your gifts you shall raise up every contribution offering due to Yahweh from all the best of them, the sacred part of them. And that's repeated over and over and over. That the priests were give the, to, the, to give the best of the contributions brought forth by the sons of Israel. And, you know, why do that? Well, the last words in verse 32 are, so that you will not die. Don't bring God the bee stock. Don't bring him the clearance items. Don't bring him the leftovers. Don't bring him the stuff that you're less interested in 
or just the time that you have left over. Just bring them the best. Don't bring them the, I'm too tired because I've been too busy in my devotion to other things like my job and the sports and planning the vacation and remodeling the house and watching the next episode. Now bring them the best. The reason that we give our best to him is because we think he's the best. And that's the reality of our life is that we always give our best to the things that we think are the best, right? Perhaps that helps us to discern some things about ourselves. And, you know, what do I give? When I'm most alert in the day, what do I give my attention to? You know, in the part of the week where I have the most energy, what do I devote it to? Uh, When I sit out and plan out the day or I plan out the week, what's the top priority? What's the number one thing that I'm making sure that I get this in somehow and then everything else falls under it? You know, if we're going to give God the best, we have to plan to do that somehow. We have to plan on what is that going to look like in the morning? What is that going to look like on being ready on Sunday and the unique gathering with God's people? You know, am I going to show up ragged because I had all this other stuff I just had to do and you just maybe crawl in on Sunday with your church clothes and your slippers on because you just couldn't get your shoes on. You were too tired. Has anyone ever done that? Like you accidentally came in your slippers? You don't want to say right now? (laughs) Chapter 19 is about the cleansing that Yahweh provides and you see this unique statute about a red heifer. And the red heifer was unique from the sin offering you see this in verse 2. It says, this, this is the statute of the law which Yahweh has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they take to you a red heifer without blemish, in which is no defect, and on which a yoke has never been placed. So what's unique about this? Well, I'm going on verse 3. It says, you, you shall give it to Eliezer, the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. There's some unique things happening here to point out that there's something unique about this sacrifice and that it's, it's well, it's not a sacrifice. I gotta quit saying that. (laughs) That's one of the unique things. It's slaughtered, not a sacrifice. That's a different word that's being used here and it's outside of the camp instead of inside of the camp. And the blood's not sprinkled on the altar, but it's toward the tent of meeting and it's not cut up, it's burnt up. And see, this is, unique and it had a specific purpose on focusing in on addressing the problem of uncleanness by the pollution of touching something that was dead now why do you think that god would offer this extra purification thing right here in dealing with the problem of touching corpses Yeah, there's just yeah, 14,700 people dead. Now they were swallowed up into the earth. How deep? I don't know. But, you know, throughout the, the wilderness wanderings, you know, uh, o- over a million people die. And the priests are regularly dealing with death and people that like, <laughs> came out of my tent and I just tripped over a dead guy. You know, what, what do I do? Like, 
you know, I want to be able to come to, to worship, but I'm unclean and I don't want to spend a whole week outside of the camp just to be able to come back and, and worship. Like, is there a faster way that uh, I can be purified? Which is the, the issue of uncleanness. You know, uncleanness is you know, disorder from how, how worshiping God and his presence should be. Uncleanness is disorder and things that disqualify one from worship, which points out that people need to be made clean. They need to be purified so that they can return to how things should be. The way that things should be is everything's orderly and in worship to God as creator and redeemer and that fellowship never being broken. Just everything clean, orderly, right all the time. And that's how things are supposed to be and will be. And as the priest would carry this out, there's, there was a costliness to it that you read in verses 3 through 10. What happens to the, the priest who slaughters this sacrifice? He becomes clean. There's another priest that's in verse 8, the one who burns it, he becomes clean. Verse 10, there's another one who gathers the ashes of this red heifer and he becomes unclean. So what do you learn about the priest? Well, the priest must defile himself for God's people in order to make them clean. This is similar to the logic in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So they see somebody else can take our uncleanness but when they do that they become that but on the other end we come out purified which raises the urgency of this cleansing and the in verses 11 to 13 you find out well, there in 13 we'll read that verse says anyone who touches a corpse the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself makes the tabernacle of Yahweh unclean. So it's like the place of Yahweh where his presence is and where he's worshipped, there's no death there. Therefore, you can't bring it there or you will die. It says that person shall be cut off from Israel. So this cleansing was urgent. It's like, I need this so that I'm not cut off from God. And it goes on 14 to 19 to explain the procedure of that cleansing and in verses 20 to 22 the graciousness of cleansing so this is verse 20 but the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has made the sanctuary of Yahweh unclean the water for impurity has not been splashed on him he is unclean so it shall be a perpetual statute for them and he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. As we've already mentioned, death was a per pervasive problem in the wilderness. It was hard to remain clean. Yet there was this water for impurity, which was like, you know, an instant sin offering. It's like, you know, when there isn't time for pour-over coffee, 
There's time for instant coffee because we got to go. I couldn't think of a better illustration. God graciously makes the cleansing from contact with a corpse easier. See what he's doing in his grace and so like you have to wait a whole week to get cleansed so you can come back into worship. So, you know, he, he puts instant sin sacrifice, you know, or sin offering, sin offering on the shelf for him. So he's like, you know, in this case, you touch a corpse, you want to deal with this quickly, here's how you do it. Red heifer. That some, some Christian's going to come up with red heifer instant coffee now. I just know it. That'll be better than Ezekiel bread, though, because they don't, which is a good thing they don't actually follow the recipe, but that's another thing. God graciously he gives this sort of instant sin offering, and all of this stuff echoes the, the truths of the, the tabernacle worship gospel tract, as we've talked about it. Teaches them Yahweh is holy, you Israelites need cleansing, and Yahweh provides atonement and purification for guilty sinners who will trust in him. And he invites them to, you know, enjoy that fellowship with him, which I know it sounds super weird to read about, you know, all these animals being cut up and you're just thinking, that would be gross. Like, we're weirded out by stuff like that. You know, I help, help somebody uh, slaughter a cow and they're kind of like stand back like, this is weird. This is weird. The neighbors are going to think we're weird. It's like, no, this is normal. This is how you get to eat these things. You have to cut it up. So perhaps when you think about, you know, the them gathering to, together and having these uh, offerings and feasts and stuff, you should think like fellowship meal, tri-tip. Think tri-tip. And you're like, now you're starting to understand that this was good. This wasn't weird. This was good. Well, God in his grace, he made this cleansing and purification easier for them. But for us in the new covenant, he's made it even easier and better in Christ it speaks of this in Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The death of Jesus is the only thing that can make us clean. And you see what it also does is it, it cleanses the conscience of the worshiper. The worshiper who says, I'm not worthy to be here because I'm guilty. Which maybe you can think of a particular sin in your life that just seems to kind of linger around. And you think about your guilt all of the time. You think about how powerful that sin is, your guilt for committing it, and there seems to be this endless cycle and that when you try to get it out of your life, you just keep committing it and thinking about how 
guilty you are, but is that how God sees you? Does he, when he looks at you, does he think, counted guilty, you're right, you should be miserable. How does he see us? We're counted what? Right? Which is not just, you know, a financial word for, you know, what's on what ledger and on the books. It's not just a, a legal word and a declaration declared from a judge, but it's a thinking word. This is how God thinks about you. He thinks about you as righteous. Like, but I did that thing again. He says, but you're free from it. You don't have to do it anymore. I don't see you as guilty. Why are you seeing you as guilty? And that ends up being the thing that corrects us and cures us from that endless cycle where you just keep trying to say, well, I'm going to beat sin by thinking about how guilty I am and just bemoaning it. It's like, no, instead of thinking about my guilt, I'm thinking about his, his grace, which has washed it away in Christ. My status actually is holy in him. It's not something I declared myself, but that's what God says about me. I just need to remember that and believe that, and it breaks that cycle of fighting with the sin that so easily entangles us. Because of Jesus, we have been brought near. Because of Jesus, we will not die, and there is no longer any wrath for you at all. There is zero punishment for every Christian. You don't need to punish yourself, and you don't need to punish anybody else either for their sins, but you can be gracious toward them as grace has been shown to you. As Paul writes in Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So you don't think, well, now I was, I was introduced by faith, but you know, I, I stand in the turmoil of my miseries and my inability to overcome this thing. It's like, no, we just keep standing in that peace. Uh, even when we don't realize that, you know, that's where we've been placed, like we're there, we're on the rock, we just need to remember it. Instead of like, oh, that, that wave splashed on me, I'm scared. It's like, oh, the, there's quicksand out there, I might sink in it. No, you won't. You're stuck on the rock. He's going to keep you there. And then Paul writes this, he says, and we boast. Now, that's where your thinking and your speaking is different. Instead of, you know, woe is me, it's you're boasting and he's made me clean. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not guilty. I've been purified. My sins have all been washed away. You know, that's how you stand in Christ. You boast in the hope of the glory of God and in his victorious salvation. Just as it says later in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Christ is our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. He's everything of our faith from beginning to end. He's our defender, the gospel gift, and the cleanser from sin. Question. Romans 5, I read verses 1 to 2 and then 8 to 9. 
Romans 5. Yeah. Good, good chapter. After Charles Simeon, this is my closing and conclusion here. After Charles Simeon found that he would not likely be preaching on that second Sunday service. You remember that? Because the people, they got some other guy in there. Two other guys for 12 years. He was met with so much hostility that what he decided to do was to start a Sunday evening service that he could preach in. But during this time, there was this really weird practice that they had where people could purchase pews and they were behind doors and you would get a key, you would rent the pew and it was part of how you supported the church. And so what all the families did who rented the pews was after the second service, they locked them and they took the key with them and they kept all the pews locked. So what Simeon did was, you know, in the, the aisle way between all the pews, he just came and set up some chairs to which some people came. And they took those chairs and they threw them out in the courtyard Nonetheless, he still preached his evening service. And after 49 years of his 54 years at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, a friend asked him how he was able to endure the persecution and the prejudice against him. Please, nobody throw out the chairs today. <laughs> Nor do that for a whole bunch of years. That would be awful. But he remained there, and his friend went like, how, how are you still here? And Simeon responded, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his glory. And I can visualize that. I have a bunch of blackberry bushes, you know, out at my house. And I could imagine, you know, like, you know, seeing salvation on the other end of <laughs> the blackberry bushes. But if my head and shoulders are out and it's just pricking my legs, like, there's hope. <laughs> but our hope is looking forward to Christ. Gospel truth was how Simeon endured as a gospel gift to a rebellious church and during years when he could have said enough is enough, he entrusted his soul to a faithful creator and doing good. The truth is for us that Jesus is enough. And that helps us to battle all opposition, whether it be from others or the opposition that's in our own hearts. The grace of God for him trumped the grumblings of men and the mercy of ministry trumped the miseries of life. And in days when it feels like enough is enough, we must remember that Christ is our all in all. Let's pray. Christ, we praise you that you are all in all. You are Lord over all the earth and you are in all of your new covenant church. And we thank you for the privilege of bringing us into that covenant by your blood, whereby you intercede for us permanently forever and even in the moment of our struggle. Help us to see your intercession for our success and that we will be victorious because you have indeed conquered and we are not our victory, but you are our victory. Help us to continually set our sights on your gospel grace that we would continue to have our 
hearts healed of remaining temptation and grumbling and to have a greater trust in you as we behold your trustworthiness in our fellowship today. Amen.